Hello, I'm Nikki Hunter, MTC's artistic producer, and on behalf of everyone at MTC, I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast was created to give our audiences a behind-the-scenes look at the productions on our stages. We hope the series will introduce you to our work as a not-for-profit theater company before or after you see the show. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at www.manhattantheaterclub.com. On this episode, we dive into Prayer for the French Republic, currently running at City Center Stage 1. During this conversation, director David Cromer and playwright Joshua Harmon are joined by actress Sass Goldberg as they talk about the inspiration for the play and bringing it to the stage. Let's listen in. Welcome, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We're here for a conversation with Joshua Harmon and David Cromer about prayer for the French Republic. I'm Sass Goldberg, and I know both of these gentlemen from the theater. I happen to have the privilege of working with Joshua Harmon before on Significant Other and him becoming a dear friend. And David Cromer, I know from the business, and we've seen each other at many things. So I'm so excited to be talking about this play. And I had the pleasure of reading this play in a very early, early version in a workshop for MTC. So if you guys could just describe who you are and who you are to the project, that would be great. I am Joshua Harmon, and I'm the playwright, and I'm Sass's friend. I am David Cromer. I am the director, and I am Josh's friend, and I I hope to be Sass's friend. I am Sass's colleague and acquaintance. (laughs) I'm taking new friends on, so (laughs) there's there's a slot for you, David. So tell me for a second, Josh and David, did you guys know each other before this process began, or was it a cute meetup? What happened? David will not remember this, but I saw Our Town back in the day, and I had a friend in it, and we all went out to Marie's crisis afterwards, and we had a very brief conversation about our our mutual love of the musical Annie. Sure. Which is, I think, near and dear to both of our hearts. Yes. So, David, that probably is not how you remember meeting Josh. How would you describe remember meeting Josh? When did that moment happen, or you don't know? I'm trying to remember. I feel like I was at both the off-Broadway and the Broadway openings of Significant Other which I love, by the way, and you in it, Sass, especially. Thank um, you. Let's talk about that in this podcast, if you guys don't mind. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, so I, but I don't remember meeting there, Josh. I feel like we met after you sent me the play. Yeah, we got after together. you brought me, hand-delivered the play <laughs> to me. Telegrammed. <laughs> yes, yes. We're going to get back to your working relationship in a second. But Josh, before you started writing the play, before Penn hit the paper, what inspired you to write this play? What was like the inciting incident or was there one? How much time do you have? I give five minutes for you. The time starts now. <laughs> so in 2015, I went to London for a production of Bad Jews. And Bad Jews had been done in 2012 and 2013 in New York. I'd seen it lots and lots of times. And I, I knew how audiences would respond to the different moments of the play. And there's a line, Daphna, one of the characters, in her monologue toward the end of the play, where she says something like, um, so now when it's safest to be Jewish than it's ever been in the history of the world, now when it's easiest, now we should all stop. And in New York, people just listen to that in contemplation. It's part of a serious part of the play. And in London, at the two previews I saw, they laughed. And part of why they laughed is because a few, uh, I think the play opened just a week after the shooting 
in Paris at a kosher supermarket. Ah. Um, and uh, there had been a shooting at Charlie Hebdo the day before. And then this um, four Jews were killed at a kosher supermarket. And this came on the heels of a decade of increasing violence against Jews in Europe and particularly in France. So people were laughing. So I was aware that something significant was shifting. And then there were all these articles that came out all over the world in the weeks and months to follow asking, is it time for Jews to leave Europe? Is it time for them to leave France? Is it still safe for them? And that is the kind of question that really engages me as a writer because it's so big and kind of unanswerable. And um, and, and I'm drawn to questions that don't have answers. <laughs> and I was also drawn to it for personal reasons because um, I am descended from French Jews and I still have some distant family there. And, and the family that came here, who I'm descended from, held on to their Frenchness for many generations. And so um, it's something that we still feel and we still take pride in. And all of the kids had to learn French in high school. And I, I wound up minoring it in college and I studied abroad. And, um, and so I had this language skill that I had never really had any reason to put it to use. And I had this question. So I spent about a year researching it here in, in reading and learning. And then in 2016, in the fall, I, I took myself on the first of um, two research trips to France. And I basically reached out to anybody I knew who knew Jews in France and said, um, Call to action. <laughs> I want to talk to them. Um, <laughs> and so I wound up meeting this kind of smorgasbord of people, but it was great. It was, I met rabbis, I met actors, I met writers, I met scholars, I met cashiers, I met shopkeepers. And what was really compelling was that they all had a completely and wildly different take on the situation, ranging from feeling totally safe to feeling scared. One moment that really stood out to me was I went to this dinner that somebody threw for me to meet a couple people. And this guy asked what I was working on. And I said, it's a play about whether Jews in France feel safe and do they want to stay? Do they want to leave? And he was like, Jews here feel fine. You don't have a play. This is not an issue. And I don't know what, you know, people wrote all sorts of articles to sell magazines, but that's not the situation here. And I was kind of crestfallen. I was like, oh my God, I guess I've really messed up. And so then this couple showed up and the guy said to them, like, this guy is writing about whether Jews are scared here. How crazy is that? And the guy and the couple said, um, well, actually, we just put our apartment up for sale because if Le Pen gets elected, we want to make sure we can get out. Hmm. And the and was the other man there to hear that comment? Yes. And the whole tenor of the dinner changed. And it became this really complex conversation about how different people feel. But I came back and I was really, you know, torn. Like, how do you how do you write something that tries to capture so many points of view? And um, I flew to D.C. where I w met up with you. And we did a reading of my play Ivanka. It was the night before the election. An we sure adaptation did. of Medea to protest Trump. Nancy Robinette was in that reading, who's now in the play, and came back and Trump was elected the next day. And, and so suddenly, you know, this question that was like, what should those people over there do, became much more personal. And in the four years of his presidency, you know, I mean, Charlottesville and Pittsburgh and, you know, so many, I mean, it's really crazy, actually, when you say out loud that like, the greatest mass murder of Jews in American history was three years ago. Like things like that feel like you shouldn't have been alive for them, sure. you know, but um, 
we were. So a lot of this play was timing. To, I mean, the timing of like what incited you to write it and then the kind of the, what happened afterwards totally informed it. Yeah. No, I mean, my interest in it was about, I was engaging in the question, I think, before I was ever considering that it was going to be a, a question, you know, people I know here would be asking. And it took me then about three years to write the whole thing, in large part because I took about two years away from it because I just got overwhelmed by the scope of the project. It's long. Wow. Should we say that? It's a long play. <laughs> it's a big play. It is a long play, but it is a big play. But reading the play, I never felt the length at all, like truly at no. all. But it's funny because like the subject of length with audiences is so tricky. You know what sure. I mean? We all think, oh, we want this. Everyone loves the 90 minute play with no intermission so that I don't feel like I went to the theater. <laughs> you know, right. everyone goes like, oh, it's only 90 minutes and there's no intermission. You're out there. You're not even going to know you it saw it. It barely play, happened to which you. Suggests, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which suggests to me, except everything you see that is full and thorough. Sometimes those plays are longer, but when it's moment to moment and when it's full and when there's no fat, being immersed in something is thrilling. Spending real time with a story is thrilling. It will be the length it needs to be for people to have the experience that I think we've set out for them to have. I get it. Yeah. So I so now I'm understanding the journey of Josh. Cromer, how did you enter the picture? How did it get to you? I know Josh hand-delivered it. But he then from there, it. what took place? What were your thoughts? What was that conversation like between the you two at first? My agent called and said, Josh Harmon is hand-delivering his play to you. <laughs> They're not allowed to send it because apparently it's brilliant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I like that. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, that's all I need is a good play. <laughs> you brought it to Studio 54. I was there and must have been in previews for The Sound Inside. And so, I, you know, I read it and it was intriguing. And I, and I, I will say that what the experience was reading it was like thrilling and exciting. And I was pulled into it and I was dragged into it. It was in an early state. And I thought that was interesting. Do you know what I mean? And so the, the first question is always... Do they think this is done? Mm. I know that's a really pompous thing to say. Like, what's the state of the play? And I think you and I had that conversation. And you said, I just, this all feels right or something. Like, I don't know what everything is. I think that this thing happens here and this thing happens here and this thing happens here. That's an oversimplification of one of the aspects of your process. And the thing that is the most compelling about it is the thing that Josh described very well as sort of the kernel of the play. And it is the thing that has never disappeared while everything around it was being deepened and made more specific and, and shaped and grew. So that's been great. And the theater was very enthusiastic about it. And we just kept having readings and, and workshops and they were wildly generous with us in terms of making time for that. It was exciting to join the play in a state where you saw what it wanted to be and then got to spend two years listening to you and observing you rewriting it. You would, you know, lay in these big blocks of a picture and then like fine tune them and fine tune them and fine tune them and, and, uh, and, or throw them away. And that was, it made me feel like I was doing something difficult when in fact I wasn't doing anything, which was very, <laughs> just my favorite kind of, of work, which is work that other people do. <laughs> David, how do you approach some, like, do you have a process or like a ritual you do when you approach new work? Is there something specific you do every single time or how do you approach a new play? What's the first thing you think about? 
I ask what state it's in. Mm-hmm. You know, I figure out what I do and don't like about it. And I ask what state it's in and what they want from it. And I also tell them what I experienced. Ideally, merely to start with, hopefully just a positive thing. I was, uh, And I think in this play, as I was so engaged by the idea that it's easy to look back in the past and say, oh, why didn't blah, blah, blah know? Why didn't this group of people know to get out of this country when the shit was hitting the fan or right before the shit hit the fan? It's very easy for us to say, whereas if you're living your life now, it's complicated and you have children and piano stores and jobs and and things to do. And there's people on the television who are telling you, you know, it's going to be fine. You go, okay, well, I think that guy in the New York Times said it's going to be fine. So I'm not too worried. And what to do next or what is the right thing to do plagues us. And this was like the absolute spine of this, you know, and, and, and not knowing and that there's not a clear, oh, not always a clear answer to that was the foundation of this thing. So, but I think I said something like that to you and you said that's what you were trying to write about and so then i knew that anything else was just going to be gravy and that you wanted to keep working on it and so that was that and then you take it and then yeah and then this this long i've not not done this long a workshop on anything that wasn't a musical that's such a gift i mean that's how amazing yeah Yeah. and it was a gamble on your part because you know i'm sure there are people who say like yeah, I'm still working on it. And then it never changes. Or so, right. you know, you fly out with me to San Francisco. And it's like, is this going to be a workshop of just reading pages in different order every day? Or, you know, but, yeah, but that's um, a get but Yeah, I, but that's I, a I really, that's a gamble worth taking. I didn't spend that. What's a year or two? You've been writing for seven years on this thing. <laughs> you know, easy for me. It's great to have a partner making the play. If you get along, and you agree on what you're going for, then it's just gets easier. In the beginning, what were the conversations you two were having as far as the design went for the production? We didn't really, t- I mean, it's David Cromer, so he's going to design. He's going to yeah. do his thing, and it's going to be wonderful. Well, that's very kind. I would say that we knew the piano is in the middle of the stage, and that Josh set up very simply in the play, a play that has a lot of requirements for location and a lot of requirements. And just when you're settled on a bunch of locations, he introduces He loves that. He loves, that's a Joshua Harmon staple. It's wonderful. It's infuriating. It's, you know what I mean? It's because it's the thing that like, if he wasn't there to do that, I would have done it. But when someone else does it to like make more work for you, you get really pissed off. (laughs) But but, like, you know, if Joshua was around, I'd be like, what if this was on a bridge? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> and so it became very clear. The piano's in the middle of the stage. It primarily, and in its early moments, trades off between two separate eras in the life of one family, mm-hmm. all in Paris, and that the play would be moving in and out of occupying the space with the piano, because at one point the piano was lived in both apartments. The play just asked for that. So really everything after that was just a how to do that. Yeah. You know, so I'll be fascinated to see what else anyone does with with the play as it moves forward, as it moves out into the world. So, yeah. And I I worked with a designer I love, who I worked with all the time, who just felt like a good match for this and uh, named Takeshi Kata who I've worked with since 2000. He did such a beautiful job. Yeah. And uh, 
I think we both said, well, what if the piano's in the middle of the stage and the whole thing's on a turntable? Yeah. So that- David, I did not say that. That was all you. <laughs> I wouldn't have known to say that. That no, was all not, you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then just how to, how to utilize that in a way that was interesting and that kept the thing uh, moving and kept it fluid and allowed you to, and had some of the grace that- I felt the one time I was in Paris where you went well, like, oh, everything just seems so... Live. Live? Y- yes, yeah, that's exactly. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything just seems so, so like it was that, you know? So, and then, and then of course, one of the first things we thought about while we were making it was one of the things Josh writes sort of over and over again is how much these people feel like they are home, that they like being French. They love being French. Mm. They love... France, you know, they love their country. And we sort of are sometimes not here on the left, always allowed to love our country or, or rather the idea that loving it means criticizing it, loving it means holding it accountable, loving it means, and not just loving it. You know what I mean? Yeah. We also like to be kind of pissed off about everything here. You know what I mean? Cause I don't know, we got it so good. Might as well be pissed off about everything, you know? Especially in New York, I would say. Especially in New York. And so I was drawn to the idea that it would be a place that you would hate to leave, that the set would be a place you would hate to leave. You would really hate to leave. I know he's good, right? So good. It's very poetic. You set the scene beautifully. Okay, so I'm going to rewind slightly to a little pandemic sitch. So talk to me about what happened. I mean, we know what happened in 2020, but during the lockdown period of 2020 and 2021 and early 2022, as we're experiencing it now. Were you in contact about the show? And if so, what did that look like? Was there work being done, changes being made to the script? Like what what was happening in that moment? Best thing that ever happened (laughs) to the play. Really? (laughs) I'm joking. But what did happen for real? Let's see. We did an in-person workshop before the pandemic hit when we got back to New York from San Francisco with all the rewrites that was incredibly encouraging. And we found a lot of actors that we were very drawn to that fit into the play really beautifully. So that was exciting. So we were sort of jumping up and down about that. Oh, we can use this person and we can use this person. And then the shutdown happened and Manhattan Theater Club was very, very aggressive about letting us know they were still planning on doing the show and that they were figuring out how to reopen responsibly, figuring out how to keep all the plates spinning. And this is something about which I'm very sort of grateful and sentimental and and very moved by was my experience with Manhattan Theater Club so far. So we had two workshops, Josh, is that correct? It is right. I mean- Over Zoom? So when the pandemic hit, I think my initial feeling, and I think yours too, was like, I don't want to do a Zoom workshop. I don't, Mm. that's not how I work. I don't want to do that. And then the pandemic went on and on. And we did a little reading of just a 20 minute excerpt for this thing. And we actually liked it. It was actually really, it felt really nice. This was like November of 2020. It It felt nice to be working- and to be in touch with the play again in a real hands-on way, not in a theoretical way. And there was work to do. We kept working. We kept adapting to the limitations, which I feel a little bit of pride about. As you should, yeah. 
you know, a new play development is you can have all the systems in the world, but every play demands different things. And yeah, I, I just thought it was we we Manhattan Theater Club kept telling us keep working, and here are some means to keep working. You know, they would get the actors for us for an extended period of time. You know, we I stole the. Um, this is probably a model that's used in development all over, but I had only experienced it one time. I stole the Sundance New Plays Lab model, which was, uh, say, yeah, if you have a five-day work week, you rehearse every other day with actors, and then the alternating days, the writer has to write. I've never heard of that before. That's genius. It's, it's so fantastic. Humane. It's so much more humane than, like, every day racing home, trying to rewrite, right. up all night. Up in the morning, rewriting, getting it. It's not even sure if you like what you wrote because it's not even time to even reread it. Correct. And this is not to, I mean, you know, actors are obviously wildly valuable, but making them sit there every day while nothing changes sure. is of no use to anybody. Yeah. Sass has never had that experience. No, no, no. <laughs> Josh has always delivered me gems day after day, hour sure, after hour. Sure. And you were able to keep your actors through this entire period? Like yeah. if your past has stayed intact? We have been building a cast slowly over the course of, from the very first reading, there is one or two actors who have been in it since the first reading I did, I think. And we have slowly been assembling a company over the course of the time. So the pandemic was a, my sanity was maintained through it by having this project, having it to work on, my ability to have the constant reassurance of an institution that they were coming back. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. I mean, it makes a huge difference. So now we're in 2022. When did you start rehearsal, official rehearsal for the project as it stands now? The official kickoff was December 6th or something like that. And what was that like, like being with the cast first day, meet and greet, rehearsal in person? Was it weird? So for me, look, we've been double masked the entire rehearsal time. You know, the actors have rehearsed masked the whole time. And with a new play, there is always, at least for me, ton of anxiety. It's a very vulnerable process. It's a very, you know, it's all theoretical. You don't know if things are going to work. But there was something about making it at this moment in time, where I just felt extremely moved, kind of consistently, that all these people were literally risking their lives to get together to try to make something. And, you know, the part of me, and I think David, that is a rigorous artist, you know, that was still there, you know, you're still trying to make the best thing that you can make. But the awareness of the lengths that the institution was going to that the people were going to that we all were going to, to, to try to make something was, you know, I mean, I think we said it every couple of days, it was just like, I am so happy that this is where I get to be today. Because you know, Omicron came back up. We didn't know if we were going to lose, you know, you just, it wasn't like a normal process where you're like, okay, this is the date and this is what we're doing. It was so unknown. And so I think there was a lot of pleasure to be taken in each present moment that we got to work. That was my experience of it. From the very beginning of the shutdown, when absolute uncertainty of what was going to happen, of will we ever be able to be in person again? Will we ever be able to do a play? Is it constantly made me realize that we had been, I would say, a little spoiled, which is that 
We were, well, you know, every theater, every not-for-profit's going to do five to seven plays a year. And if you're lucky enough to be one of those, these are your dates, and this is going to go. And if you lose an actor, you get somebody else. And Hamilton will always be running. You know what I mean? Yeah. And everything's just going to be the same. There's no threat to the basic paradigm of the theater. And that made people grumpy and nasty. And you know what I mean? Like, like having everything you want makes people grumpy. Complacent. Complacent. And the lack of complacency, it, it reminded me that there is something sacred about it and that you can be rigorous and still be humane and be rigorous and still be grateful, you know, that it's fragile. You know, there was a moment at the band's visit during tech for relaunching the tour, we were at tech in Richmond, Virginia, and we were standing around the tech table and the associate producer came over to a member of the creative team and said, would you go see the COVID officer? Uh -uh. And we went, oh, why? And he said, would you please go see the COVID officer now? Which meant that this person had just tested positive for COVID and was basically just escorted out of the building, you know, and taken to get a PCR. And so people were just disappearing, right? <laughs> you know? It was a reminder to like that there was something kind of sacred about huddling in the room. So I've enjoyed being at work. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, have you approached your work differently after such a long shutdown? But it sounds like you both have, or it's changed, it's changed some things and kept some things the same. Yeah. Every moment of rehearsal is precious and we've got to get as much done as we can so that we can weather the problems that are going to come our way. And we have had them and we'll have them again. We'll keep having them. It could happen at any time. It's not over. We can't get complacent again, but we are still doing it as opposed to staying at home in fear. There are protocols for doing it, which was a giant piece of progress. And I consider it a, a victory, a triumph. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A hundred percent. So Josh, like when you were hearing these words for the first time out loud, in the rehearsal room with the actors there. You said double masked. Is Did I hear that right? Yeah. Once Omicron came back, people oh, were... Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. So were there adjustments made to the script? And if so, like what, what did illuminate that? Or what was the catalyst for those changes? So, you know, on the one hand, we had had all of these really big workshops coming into it. Mm -hmm. And I had done a ton of work on the play in San Francisco. And then in the workshop we had in, in person in in 2020. And then so a lot of that work had gotten done. But there was one scene in particular that I like, we heard it the first time. And I was like, I said to David, I never want to hear that scene again until I've rewritten it. It's just too terrible. Um, and there were- It was not terrible. It was just not as good as everything. <laughs> it was not as good. But you know, we also, we hadn't, the play takes place in two time periods. And we had had more time with the people in the present family and less time with the people in the past. And once we got our family in the past and we were seeing them, you know, it's that thing where I started to get really excited to write for them. And and we have this amazing group. And so I rewrote a lot of those scenes several times until we felt like we got them right. And then there was, you know, trimming and cutting and stuff like that. But uh, I think the focus of like the big, big rewrites was the the scenes from the 40s. I remember reading it like in the early incarnation of the play, and there were a lot of hearty laughs, if I remember correctly. What I remember, again, this was a very early draft, so I'm sure it's changed a lot, but it really kind of oscillates between very funny at certain times and then deeply, deeply serious. And was there, are, there, are those moments still in the play? Or are they few and far between? 
Well, I don't, I don't want to blow smoke up your ass ass, but like, that's partly why I asked you to read it for me that first time was just because you can blow all the smoke, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's like, it's something I actually learned from Marsha Norman when she wrote Night Mother, which I think is a much, in many ways, a much darker play than what this is. But she talks about how you always have to cast comic actors in those roles because otherwise it's death. Oh, you know, if you're just seeing dramatic people be dramatic. And so hearing you read the play and being like, okay, great. There's it's written in such a way that a smart comic person can find um, the funny, the uplift, the funny, because it, yeah, it gets heavy, but anytime you're dealing with heaviness, at least in my experience, you know, humor is what you traffic in. And so it was it was more about casting. It was more about making sure you had people who were not precious mm-hmm. with the material and who were alive. That's just what feels very true to me. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hoping I mean, I think they're very hard-earned Josh Harmon laughs. Do you know what I mean? Which is they come from an often very dark place. They come from a place of kind of pain and and in, you know, and in some cases I would say <laughs> a place of embarrassment or finding yourself in a compromised situation emotionally. Very fair. So I think they're hard-earned like that. I don't I've always been bugged when when I was very young, I was sort of came up in an era in Chicago where some of the people I was exposed to were sort of very into the old English style of acting and all that thing about, oh, you must play self-pity or which, of course, is my stock in trade. Self-pity is, <laughs> you know, and uh, oh, well, you need a laugh here to release the tension. I had some teachers say to me or some directors say to me when I was young and I just that made me crazy. You mean all that tension that's been so easy to build <laughs> all that tension we just had lying around <laughs> like kudzu. <laughs> Growing up the wall. That makes me crazy. So I'm sort of allergic to like, now we have a laugh line and I don't ever feel like we're having that moment, you know, but well, we laugh our asses off at rehearsal. Do you? Oh. I hope somebody else will. Yeah. It's, I mean, there are a lot of people in pain. Yeah. It's very it's funny hilarious. to me. It's hilarious. <laughs> well, it's recognizable pain. There's freedom in that. Oh. So for people who are listening and people who come to see it, like, what's your takeaway? What do you want them to take away from the play? Is there something you want them to take away or you want them to have a sing? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. nothing. That's so hard. I, I sat mean, it's, there it's for a great, what? No, it's a great question. And it's a hard question. Look, I never know how to answer that kind of stuff because I also, I sort of feel like it's not my, not only not my job, but not my right to tell people what. To feel. Something should mean to them. Mm-hmm. But I hope that. If nothing else, it is an emotionally resonant, full meal experience for people mm-hmm. that they that they come and they feel like they've really felt something and they've thought about some interesting things and they've had a deep experience. And working on this show and working on it in this moment has been such an important reminder of why I love theater to begin with. And the play is just a big family play. And there's a lot of characters to meet and to consider. And, and so I hope, I hope it makes people feel something because I I guess I've certainly binge watched plenty in this pandemic, but you know, you can only feel so much on your couch looking at a screen alone. Mm -hmm. And um, there's nothing quite like what we try to do. So that's what I hope it is. I hope it's a, it's a full meal for people. I've been to the theater three times in the last couple of weeks, and I have 
been in a theater with people who were really happy to be there. And I've sat in the space and felt the communion and nobody got sick <laughs> and felt the communion more profoundly than I felt it in a really long time. So, uh, you know, we are making a, a series of complex, hopefully recognizable choices that hopefully will speak to people. What they hear, I don't, I don't know, you know, but it is with respect for their time <laughs> and all of our fears that I think occupy us while we work on this. Gentlemen, thank you so much for talking to me and letting me in a little bit of the process. I feel like I got some behind the scenes conversations and anecdotes. Sass, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what this looks like on stage and everyone get your tush to the theater, double mask and do it up. 